0: Hello everyone and welcome to a special edition of GUCast. Uh, my name is Renu Epin. I'm a urologist at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre here in Melbourne and today we're hooking up with our good friends at Eurotoday.com to post an interview that we've just done with our very own Declan Murphy here at Peter Mac. Now many of you will be very familiar with Eurotoday which is a fantastic and free multimedia platform which covers all aspects really of, u- of urology and uh, please do check them out at Eurotoday.com. So in this interview, Dr. Alicia Morgans of Northwestern University in Chicago discusses the impact of COVID in Australia at present, which uh, thankfully is not as devastating uh, here as we've seen uh, elsewhere. So with a lot of thanks to Alicia and all our friends at Euro
1: Today, please enjoy. Enjoy. Hi, this is Alicia Morgans, GU Medical Oncologist and Associate Professor at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois in the United States. I am so excited to have here with me today Professor Declan Murphy, who is a urologist at the Peter McCallum Cancer Center and the Royal Melbourne Hospital, uh, where he does all kinds of exciting GU research and cares for patients with prostate cancer and, and GU malignancies. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Declan. I, I really wanted to follow up with you and talk about how things have changed for your practice and your your center as we find that COVID-19 is hopefully uh, sort of ramping down but continuing on in this steady state. Uh, I'm sure a lot is is changing as it is changing all around the world.
0: I suppose, you know, and as, as these scenes are playing out around the world six weeks ago, we were thinking, gosh, you know, we probably will get like that. So we had to therefore stop doing some stuff, even though we were fully staffed. Um, so we stopped new clinical trials opening. That was a, a big impact. So uh, trials that we're about to have there, and um, uh, uh, startup investigator meetings were put on hold. Uh, we also uh, were scaling back recruitment into existing trials, and uh, stopping patients at the screening point uh, and so on. Um, uh, so that was a, a certainly from a trial, from a research point of view, a, a quite immediate impact for us. And we've heard you know, Tom Powells and others speak on your podcast at Euro Today about the similar impact they've had and, and how they're now slowly getting back to normal. From a surgery point of view, I'm, I'm a urologist. Um, we very much were having to look at a surge plan to say, OK, if that time comes and our staffing numbers drop and so on, what are we going to stop doing? Um, And uh, so we had scaled that out. We had stratified patients to say what we would stop doing. But guess what? We haven't stopped doing anything. Um, So I suppose that's been a great relief to us that uh, we literally have not had to change anything uh, we do. Um, And that includes, uh, you know, prostate cancer surgery for localized prostate cancer. Uh, It includes small renal masses and so on. Procedures that in your center and and many other big Western centers um, have been put on hold. And we were prepared to do that, but I'm pleased to sit here in early May and say, guess what? No patients have had to have their uh, procedures postponed and we've had really no negative impact from a cancer delivery point of view, um, broadly speaking.
1: That's wonderful. Um, and, and I hope that it continues that way. And, um, and I'm, I'm very glad. Because we've had many conversations over the last few weeks about how we really balance the risk of the cancer, which is, was real before and remains real for these patients, um, really just facing this you know, potential risk of COVID-19 as well. And, and if you're able to continue full force with the cancer therapies that patients need, that is, that is really critical. Um, but you, of course, had the flexibility to, to shift if, if you needed to. You know, you did you did mention clinical trials and and um, and you know uh, delaying those site investigator visits, that those startup visits that um, that we all need to really get trials off the ground. Have those resumed? Are you getting back to doing the trials that are so innovative and exciting coming out of the Peter Mac?
0: Well, they are literally just this week, and um, one of the first things that happened when the surge planning was was taking place was we moved almost all the research division uh, in, in our cancer center. Uh, almost all the researchers are physically in the building, the new building we moved into uh, a couple of years ago. But we we very quickly moved them out um, and to work from home and shut down all new experiments and so on. And from a trial point of view, everything was on hold. But guess what? Everything's back up and running now, uh, which is a good thing, uh, I think. It it reflects you know, the changing um, uh, impact of the disease in this country where, for example, community transmission in, in Melbourne has almost eliminated. Um, and so on. But I think we also have to be prepared because one of the the, the drawbacks of only having had six or seven thousand people in the whole country affected is that there is no immunity and we certainly will be vulnerable to more waves of pandemic uh, in the future. Um, It's probably one of the reasons why I think uh, you won't be traveling down here anytime soon, Alicia. I think uh, international travel in and out of Australia is going to be one of the last things that really uh, starts going again uh, at scale because the, one of the biggest risks to us is is uh, people bringing uh, the the virus back in here. Um, so I think yes, we we we're trying to do business as usual, but you know that that's not to say we haven't learned a lot of lessons from uh, the global community. And I must say the the Euro Today podcast have been really helpful to us in planning for uh, what might have been a worst case scenario. Um, and you know I think the messaging we have to patients um, is very very important because. Patients are reading in the paper that stuff's going to be stopping or they're reading that in New York, there's no elective surgery happening, uh, et cetera, et cetera, wondering, oh, is that going to happen to us? Um, And I think as a a community of uh, care providers, we have begun to learn um, how to communicate with these patients such that, for example, if we did have to stop doing um, prostate cancer surgery or small kidney mass surgery or or so on, um, we had you know, I think confidently prepared some messages for our patients so that they would understand it's okay, actually. Um, you know, for a lot of the stuff we do for the early cancers and so on, whilst they are significant and we all agree they need some treatment, it's actually okay uh, not to have that particular surgery this month. Uh, and it'll be okay to have it at a better time in a couple of months time. So I think we we, we must do our best um, in times that we all find nerve wracking and worrying uh, to, to to try and have good communication with our patients, so they understand that the, you know relatively small delays or even moderate delays for prostate cancer is okay.
1: And and that's certainly the messaging that multiple groups in the U.S. and in Europe have been have been um, discussing. And so I'm glad that you already have that communication going with your patients. Um, and 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 it may be I don't know if you are preparing already for potentially. Uh, a wave another wave to come so what we in the U.S. think about and, and have been talking about is that as our summer comes which is for some of us already started and for others like here in Chicago not quite here yet hopefully you know closer to June will it'll be warmer here um, we are hopeful that things may be a little bit better. But then, of course, as fall comes and winter, where flu in in the US starts to pick up again, um, there's also the concern, of course, that COVID-19 could pick up as well. And um, and certainly then patients could get flu and COVID-19, which could be even even more concerning. you're moving into your fall and, and your winter seasons is this something that you think about and and um and it sounds like you've actually laid beautiful groundwork and have have plans to proceed uh, through different phases if if you have to but is this something that you're thinking about with your patients
0: yeah for sure alicia and of course many of us uh were, were uh uh, interested in this uh, typical cycle, we see that seasonal flu tends to go away when it warms up and so on. But, uh, but you know, out of interest, if you look, actually, I've heard a, a virologist commenting on this the other day that in Australia, we had our first cases uh, of coronavirus um, in January, because of course, we're so well connected to China, literally, as soon as there was a couple of cases in China, there were a couple of cases in Australia, I think around the 20th of January, which is a peak summer for us. Um, And so January, February, and you might recall all these terrible scenes of fires we had in Australia. We had a particularly hot summer just gone by. But guess what? The coronavirus had no problem uh, taking off in our summer and uh, early autumn when the temperatures are very hot. So in fact, our peak period of of incidence growth, if you look at the curves, was from January up to mid-March, which is guess what? Summertime and early autumn growing uh, numbers. Uh, And here we are coming into winter and and numbers have dropped off uh, because of social distancing. So I think a message in there is that I I don't think we can presume this particularly very contagious virus is going to be as susceptible to either the the benefits of it warming up um, uh, uh, that we might have presumed. Um, So I suppose that brings us on to the social distancing side of it, which has been very effective uh, in our country and seems to be effective whenever you do start it, and it's important to start early. Um, And I think that's going to be a legacy, isn't it, for quite a while to come, that even if the numbers get wiped out as you warm up in Chicago, uh, I think you're going to find that it's not going to return to to life as normal, even if it returns to kind of business as normal in 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 the big center you work in at Northwestern. Um, so I suppose as as, as, as uh, uh, colleagues and, and parents and uh, children, we will be adopting to a, a different type of summer. Uh, uh, in the one you face into, it will certainly be socially distanced, uh, I think.
1: I agree, and and thank you also for clarifying that. Certainly, this virus, despite different mes- messaging, does not seem to be so sensitive to winter versus summer. I think the concern in the US is that as flu picks up, people may be um, just more vulnerable, um, and that co-infection could be, could be a challenge. But, um, but I, I do agree with you and hope that social distancing here, as it has in Australia, will um, will reduce that number, and that we have learned hopefully by the fall. Um, we know how to social distance, we know how to protect ourselves, that things will will be better. You know one thing um, as we start to wrap up that um, has been very important, and you mentioned earlier is this telemedicine, this remote care. Uh, of patients has become really standard here in the US. It sounds like it's also standard for you in Melbourne. Um, In a place like Australia with such vast expanses and, and people that could need care being so far away geographically, um, do you find that this might be a silver lining that that is a way, hopefully and potentially, for you to care for patients who need who need services? Certainly not surgeries. You can't do that from a distance. I wish I wish that you could, maybe someday. Um, but to provide more care for those who do have themselves so separate from you because of the the geography of of where you live.
0: Oh, for sure. D- don't we all feel that? And it is important to have a silver lining to uh, look forward to. But good things always come out of these types of big events. Um, and I think that's just something we'll look back to in years to come. Uh, or indeed, our, our next generation of residents will will sit with their mouths open thinking, what, the patients used to come into to the office all the time for their follow-up appointment? and and they'll find it hard to imagine that because um, uh, I think, uh, especially because it's not just a short period, Alicia, where it's just three or four weeks of disruption. It's going to be a whole, but long period, year or two. So we're all going to really adjust to this, patients and, and clinicians at, at all levels. And I think we'll take it as a, a legacy. Um, and in Australia, as you say, we're a big country, so we've always had you know some uh, significant embrace of telehealth as as the technologies have allowed. Um, But to give you an example, um, uh, at Peter Mac, the cancer center we work in, which is a big uh, tertiary level center, people come in there for trials and specialist treatments. Um, At the start of March, um, about 5% of our uh, consultations um, in the outpatient department were by telehealth. Um, And now, last week, I think 70% were telehealth. Um, So that's great, isn't it? You know, and I must say uh, we've all adjusted to it. I I might ask you as an oncologist looking after a lot of patients with advanced disease um, about this very topical area of breaking bad news on telehealth. And and we've read a lot about this on Twitter. Um, And I've seen people making comments that, yeah, telehealth is great. But when you have to have these breaking bad news conversations, you know, uh, I'm not comfortable with that. I prefer to have the patient in, in the office with me. Um, But I had a fascinating um, uh, conversation on our podcast on GUcast a couple of weeks ago with somebody um, who gave us a totally different perspective. Uh, We were chatting to Rob Hamilton, a urologist in Toronto, who's actually done a a randomized trial of telehealth in testis cancer patients in in the pre-COVID era and testing what the uh, reactions of patients were. Now, granted, these are younger patients, but also they are receiving bad news uh, on some occasions with metastatic disease. And they made the comment that, you know, they often feel more comfortable receiving bad news in their home surroundings rather than, for example, receiving it in a doctor's office and then go back out to the waiting room and, uh, and pay for your parking ticket and so on. You know, that we, sh- we as clinicians should not presume that because we feel the best place to deliver bad news is in our office because that's where we always deliver it and we're used to that. And um, we should also consider how the the patient is receiving the bad news and the type of environment they may feel more comfortable um, and chances are guess what it's not going to be in a in a in a hospital waiting room in a big public clinic you know, and it may well be at home with a loved one so I think uh, uh we we we're all going to uh, even in areas we might find uncomfortable now uh, adopt to telehealth and understand that this is going to be one of the best things that comes out of this crisis.
1: I think it's so interesting that you mentioned that, and I will have to look up that study on telehealth um, in testicular cancer patients discussing bad news, because there's actually a palliative care telehealth study going on right now. It's just launching um, at Northwestern, I think at several other sites, to evaluate this very similar thing. Where do patients feel most comfortable? Are, Are we most comfortable delivering bad news? in our clinic in face-to-face fashion because we're actually quite comfortable in that setting. That's our home in a sense. That's where we have our support system. Um, But patients may actually prefer to be able to cuddle up in their bed after they're done hearing some bad news and turn off the phone or the the viewer and just take a minute to themselves or be in their own home, their own comfort. So um, you make a very, very good point. And I think that it's important for us always to remember that just because we're most comfortable or we think that this is the right treatment or we think that this is the patient's preference that um, they are unique and different people than than us, right? And that their comfort and their preferences may be completely different than we realize. And if we don't ask, we, we won't know. So I definitely look forward to that. And thank you for raising that very, very important issue. So thank you, as always, Declan, for sharing your expertise and your insights. Um, I I do hope we can catch up with you at some point in the future and hear how things continue to evolve. And I wish you the best of luck uh, in your continued care of patients, your training of residents and fellows, and your amazing clinical uh, trial work, uh, really advancing the field for all of us. Thank you for your time today.
0: Thank you.